0: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke. Up to this point in Luke, we have seen Jesus perform many miracles, healing the sick, Cleansing lepers, causing the blind to see, feeding thousands with five loaves of bread and two fish. The religious leaders of the day wanted to see Jesus dead as many people began to follow him. Jesus warned the crowds of the Pharisees' hypocrisy and called all men to lay down their lives to be one of his disciples. Jesus told them they must consider the cost. The scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus and condemned him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus shared three parables about how God is excited when sinners repent and turn back to their loving father. Jesus then shared a parable about a shrewd and cunning steward, emphasizing that his followers must be willing to give up their lifestyle of taking advantage of others. Disciples of Jesus must not live for wealth nor money. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 16 verse 9.
1: This guy had recognized that he was in massive trouble and he did what was necessary to fix it. But why would Jesus, why in the world would Jesus tell us a story about an evil man who's able to think on his feet? Are we supposed to follow his example by doing whatever it takes to secure our safety when we get caught or we end up in trouble or create trouble for ourselves? No, not at all. Jesus' point is at the end of this verse. He says, for, and here's the point, The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The children of this world, it means a non-God-fearing person. In other words, someone who doesn't live by God's standard, clearly like this unjust steward. Someone who lives by their own standard. Someone who lives by their own standard, they are in their generation shrewder. Same word for wise here. They can think on their feet better than the children of light the idea in their generation means people of the same kind. In other words, when an unsafe person interacts with other unsafe people, they know how to look out for their, for their own skin when they get themselves into trouble. I don't have these moral constraints around me to figure out how to make myself prosper or thrive, even though I've made a mess here and I've gotten caught. They know how to deal with the unsafe people. They know how to work the system. And so they'll do whatever they got to do to do it. On the other hand... When a believer acts with his own kind, and that's the idea here, when a believer acts with other believers or with the Lord, we don't do so well, <laughs> is what Jesus is saying. I remember a story someone told, I don't remember how long ago it was, I think it was about 15 years ago, but there was a very well-known pastor in Colorado, but he was well-known in, in political action communities and a couple other things as well, he spoke at a lot of places, a lot of big events. And he ended up getting busted because he he was seeing a male escort. And so when that all came to light, you know, the the church pretty much trashed him. And so anyway, I remember a friend of mine who who knew this individual. He was talking about, you know, he was at at a restaurant trying to share his faith with a, a friend of his. And this friend basically eventually said to him, he said, listen, I don't disagree with everything you say about Jesus. He goes, my problem is with you. And as you're having this conversation, the news was talking about this event where this guy had fallen and what was going on. And the pastor said, this other guy said to me, he said, what what are you talking about? He goes, well, look at this guy. He's one of your own. You eat your own. He goes, clearly this is a guy who's gotten himself in a ton of trouble and he needs a bunch of help. But all you do is eviscerate him. He goes, I believe everything that I see about Jesus and I see in the Bible. makes sense to me. He goes, but if that's the result, I don't want any part of that. We have a tendency to... Unfortunately, act like the unsaved when we deal with each other. We don't use our heads well. We tend to lose our minds when we get into a difficult situation as Christians, and then we end up being critical of one another or even sometimes being deceptive with one another. I mean, how many times have you heard about the person who they made a really poor choice and then they just drop off the map? What would be the most sensible thing to do in a situation where you've blown it as a Christian? Go to your family, right? Go to your family and get help, right? And yet, why does it seem like when that happens, when somebody really blows it big time, or they, I don't know the way, any way to say it, but when someone has a failure, that they don't come to their family. It's almost as if Jesus says, you know, we don't do a good job when we get into trouble. And see, these new believers, they're tax, former tax collectors. Well, not former yet. They're still tax collectors, Sinners, people who have made bad choices, made a lot of mistakes. And they would be tempted to preserve their way of life that their evil deeds had gotten them. See, as Christians, what Jesus is saying, we don't live to save our own skin anymore now that we follow him. They and we, we need to face our past wrongs by writing them. We need to work together to help one another to fix those things, even if it costs us something. And so in verse nine, he tells these guys here, he says, Rather than pulling away or rather than compromising or rather than not making things right, he says, here what you need to do. Verse 9. This is the point. This is the point of the whole parable. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now, again, you read that and you go, okay, that's really difficult to understand. What in the world does that mean? I need to make friends with of money or wealth. The mammon of unrighteousness, it means unrighteous worldly wealth. That which the world craves, labors, and fights for. That which 1 Timothy 6, 6, 6, 10 says is the root of all kinds of evil. That which is that. It says we need to make friends of that? No, that's not what it says. The word there friends, it means philos. It means associates for whom there is affection and personal regard. We need to make to ourselves other people that we have affection and personal regard for, not the mammon of unrighteousness, but from out of the mammon of unrighteousness. That's what the word of there means. It's ek in the Greek, which means from out of or by means of. It's easy to misunderstand this statement as we need to make money our friend. Not at all. Rather than crave, labor, and fight for more money so we can satisfy our evil desires, we need to build true, meaningful relationships from out of the resources at our disposal. Why? That when, not ye fail, that's another bad translation, but when it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. When money doesn't matter anymore, when does money not matter anymore? When you're done with this life. When you're in heaven. There'll be no currency in heaven. There'll be no currency in heaven. So when that happens, then they, those friends who you invested to on the earth, they'll receive you into everlasting habitations. What's Jesus saying? The children of this world live for now, and they do whatever they have to do to get by. That's not the way we're to live as Christians. We are to live for eternity. And you know what? There's only one thing from this world that you can take with you into eternity. And what is it? Other people, right? Right? That's it. It's the only thing you can take with you to eternity. Not your car, not, not the new amped up computer you just bought, not the switch. right? Not the home? None of those things. Not the pool that you just installed. Jesus, I have a better one anyway. Crystal C? Tough crowd. <laughs> There's only one thing you can take with you to eternity. it's other people. These. Publicans and sinners had loved the world with everything in them. I mean, they had followed and pursued what they craved with everything in them. They'd taken advantage of others in such dastardly ways that they were known as publicans and sinners. You could identify them easily. And Jesus says, it's time to fix that. It's time to make amends. It's time to start investing in something else. And you know, when we have an environment like that in our church where people are investing in people, then guess what happens? When you blow it and you fail, you run to your family. If we have an environment that's not like that, the rest of us are trying to save our own skin. And so if you're trying to save your own skin, what happens when someone falls down and the enemy's after you? You leave them behind. If that's the environment we're cultivating, then when someone falls down, they're not gonna be thinking clearly. They're not going to be making the hard choice or the right choice. So he's telling these new believers, guys, you need to make some right decisions here, some hard decisions. You need to make things right. It's time to make amends. And thus now we get to the teaching, verses 10 through 13. Jesus starts off with a truth about character, just about a person's character. He says, Listen, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. This is a truth statement, a fact of life. I, I always like kind of put a little symbol next to things like that in the scripture. This is just a true thing. It's a true concept. Like, for example, I think Paul says, you know, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I put a little, little note next to that. That's a truth I need to never forget. This is a truth statement here. He that is faithful, dependable, reliable, trustworthy in that which is least, that which is of very little importance, he will also be the same in much, in that which is the upper range of importance. He that is unjust, unrighteous, doing wrong, not living by God's standard, in that which is of least importance, he'll also be doing that which is wrong and doesn't operate by God's standard, in that which is the upper range of importance. In other words... If I'm unreliable and make poor choices and things of very little importance, I cannot magically turn on a switch and become trustworthy in a thing of great importance. I can't. It doesn't work that way. I hear people say it all the time. Oh, when I get married, no, 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 no. Then I'll become, I'll, be, I'll do better. And sometimes I even hear about prospective, you know, like fiancés, and they think, well, no, no, well, when, they, when he gets married, he'll change. No, he won't. Nothing in life works like that. So if you're unfaithful in things of least importance, you're not all of a sudden going to become a person of character and reliability and trustworthiness and things that require greater responsibility. If you want to see what a person will be like in a situation that requires a high level of character, look at their character in everyday situations. Because that's who they'll be. Because whether it's a serious situation or an everyday one, I'm still me. I'm still me. Now, having established this truth, Jesus now applies it to the publicans and sinners who were listening to him, these new believers. He says, if therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, you know, worldly wealth, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Do you catch what Jesus did there? Now we're getting to the teaching of the parable. He tells us weird parable, but now here's the point. Here's the teaching here. Jesus, he is equating unrighteous mammon, our monetary resources, with a thing of very little importance. That's what he says. And true riches, eternal habitations, heaven, the thing of great importance, eternity, right? Material things, our monetary resources, thing of very little importance. Eternal things, true riches, thing of great importance. Why would Jesus call something as important as money a thing of very little importance? Well, as I said earlier, will you be able to take your wealth with you into eternity? No, but what's crazy is many act like they can. Think of all the burial rites of ancient times. I mean, what did they do? They loaded them, right, with tons of material goods to help them in the afterlife, right? They'd put their favorite things, they'd make sure there's plenty of food, clothes for travel, a walking stick, all the things they put in there to make sure you'd be good for the afterlife, right? It was a part of their theology. We may not do that in our burial rituals here in the US, but by the energy that's put into amassing wealth or possessions, you'd think we still did believe that. But we can't take a single penny with us. It really is a thing that won't matter at all in eternity. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that? What does your approach to wealth or possessions tell you about what you really believe? What's your theology on wealth and possessions? What does your approach to it tell you? And you might be saying, Pastor Will, the Bible has a lot to say about managing your financial resources. You're right. That's why Jesus says, if therefore you have not been faithful in that which is least, how can you be faithful in the true riches? How can someone entrust you with the true riches? Jesus says we must be faithful with this thing of very little importance. Did you know that you could tell a lot about a person's character by how they approach money? A lot. Are they greedy or are they generous? Are they lazy or are they dependable? Are they lustful or are they content? Do they spend foolishly? or wisely. That's quite a few character traits that you can get to know about someone just by looking at how they manage their financial resources. Why were these guys labeled as publicans and sinners? Well, they had all the negative things there, right? Greedy, lazy, not going to work. They just live off taking money from other people. All these things here, they fell into the negative categories of that. And see, here's the reality. Those character flaws or strengths they will reflect similar flaws or strengths in other areas of my life. That's why the Bible teaches us the proper way to manage our financial resources because when we do that with a thing of least importance, it helps other areas of our lives for us to have character. So if you and I are not listening to God's commands regarding money in the scripture, tithing, generosity to others, discipline, self-control, contentment, many other principles that the New Testament teaches. If we are not listening to God's commands there, why wouldn't God entrust me to do something that will matter in eternity? He won't. He won't. So what's the point? Well, these people, they had made awful decisions that labeled them as publicans and sinners. The tax collectors for sure had ripped people off financially. So if this group was gonna follow the Lord and and be used by God, They needed to make things right in the area of their money. Because the reality is, is every penny didn't belong to them anyway. It all belonged to the Lord. Look at verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give unto you that which is your own. Here God lays claim to all of our monetary resources. None of it belongs to me, not a single penny. Now that might offend you. You might be saying, I work hard for what I have, Pastor Will. Who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the ability to think? Who gave you the ability to comprehend the schooling or the training that you needed to succeed in that work? The Lord did, right? No doubt the tax collectors had worked very hard to provide the life they led. But it would all be left behind at death because it never belonged to them in the first place. That's why you can't take it with you. You don't own any of it, actually. So you can't take the car, the home, or the the hobby supplies that you need to do the hobby, any of those things. You can't take it with you because it doesn't really belong to you. You have to leave it behind at death. In Psalm chapter 50, verses 7 through 12, the Lord, he really rebukes Israel through this Psalm because he was frustrated by their offerings they were bringing to him, just going through the motions. Thinking that, well, they had to keep God fed. They'd bring food offering, their, their tithe of food. Or they needed to keep God happy with a good barbecue every once in a while. And in Psalm 50, verses 7 through 12, the Lord says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, even your God. And I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings. He says, you've done well to be obedient to me to do these things because I've told you to do these things. But I'm not pleased with it. He says in verse 9, I will take no bullock out of your house, nor he goats out of your folds. The idea is, I I don't want what you're bringing to me. Why? Verse 10, Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field. They are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. I think sometimes we can fall into the same trap and we can think that, well, I'm going to give God something, you know, it's all His anyway. So it's not the actual substance that's being given. It's the attitude in the heart behind the giver. That's important, right? And that's what Israel was lacking. They weren't doing it because they loved God or they wanted to please him or they wanted to be generous, you know, to the priests or whatever. That that had nothing to do with it. They were just going through the motions. The Lord says, if you're just going through the motions, it's already mine to begin with. So you're not really giving me anything. When Jesus turned to this crowd in chapter 14 and he said to them in verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If any man is not willing to take up his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus had told them to count the cost. They were all on there just for the miracles, and he turned to them and he said, "Count the cost if you want to be my disciple." Well, these did, these did, and so now Jesus lays out the cost. You need to go make things right. Is what he's saying. If you've stolen, return it. If you cheated someone, fix it. See, well, how do we make do? Trust your master. Trust your master to take care of you. Because if you do, he'll give you things that nobody can take away from you, not even death. He says, you'll be given that which is your own. If you're not faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? The implication there is that God will give us something that is our own. Can I tell you something that you'll be given in eternity that no man will take from you? Those crowns, eternal life. The rewards that God gives to us in heaven, nobody will take that from you that will be a, a, for something that lasts for eternity. So why not labor for that instead of for amassing something here or at least being focused on that? Why not manage what God gives you here, be content with that, use it for his glory, be generous, be faithful, be disciplined, exercise self-control and submit to your master knowing that he loves you and he'll take care of you because that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Who's in charge of my life? Is it gonna still be me or will it be the Lord? Will it be temporary things or will it be Jesus? And that's what Jesus, the whole point of this is. They needed to settle the question, that question, here and now, if they were gonna move forward spiritually. So we close now at verse 13, where Jesus says, no servant, and I love this here. The word for servant here, there's multiple words for servant in the New Testament. And this one refers to the household servant, the one that would be viewed as family, the one that lived on the property, the one that was regarded as family. None of you guys, you're my family now. He says, but no servant, no family member could serve two masters you can't respond to the commands or demands of two masters why for he will hate the one and love the other or he'll cling to one hold the one and despise the other the word there hate it means to detest to the point of aversion you'll detest one of those masters to the point you want anything to do with them don't want to be around them Or you'll cling to one and despise, which means to look down on someone, to think someone as bad or having no value. When you and I have rival idols in our lives, we see God as the obstacle that keeps us from what we really want. We then devalue knowing God and following his commands because my hunger for that other master becomes insatiable. And so I work harder to preserve that relationship and I neglect the Lord. And thus the closing principle, you cannot serve God and worldly wealth. The word there cannot is in the present tense. It means you never were, never can, and never will be able to serve worldly wealth and God. Because if worldly wealth is your idol, you will grow to despise and avoid God. So too, if these new disciples didn't make things right regarding their greed, they will grow to despise and avoid the God they've just committed to. And Jesus didn't want that for them, and he doesn't want that for you and me. And so I ask you this morning, what do you need to do to make things right? Jesus urged these new disciples to do so right away. Then what are you waiting for? Do you have a rival master? Is Jesus your only Lord? If you have a rival master, it's time to do what Gideon did. You remember he went out and he cut down the family idol that was sitting out in the yard. It's time to go, it's time to go have an idol smashing party. That's the only answer for an idol. There's no other answer for an idol. You don't sell the idol to somebody else. You smash it. Because that's the only way to be done with it. If you've got something you know you need to make amends for, something you need to make right, it's time to do that. Before we close out, I want to point out that Jesus said these heavy things to these new believers. Brand new spanking new believers. He said these things to these new believers because God wanted to use these people. So here's my question to you. Can you imagine the impact it would have if they'd returned all that they'd stolen or cheated from people? Can you imagine the impact it would have if all the wrongs that they'd done, they went and they fixed them, made them right? I can tell you the impact it would have. It would have a huge impact. And we don't even have to guess what it was because other tax collectors did exactly what Jesus was telling them to do here. And we saw the results. Remember Zacchaeus? I'm going to give, I don't remember the exact amount, but the percentage, but he said, I'm going to give this back to everyone I cheated. You wonder why tax collectors followed Jesus? Because they saw a change in the tax collectors that followed Jesus. (laughs) They wanted to be a part of that family because prior to that, the only family they had was other fellow cheats. Guys, we've been brought into this family and we can not just have a huge impact on each other, but we can have a huge impact on our sphere of influence by when we make things right, when we've done something wrong. One of the best ways to share your faith is to make things right when you blow it. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to go to your sphere of influence and be that kind of missionary. Be the missionary that Jesus is telling these tactics collectors, these publicans to be. Go find your old unsaved friends that maybe you've wronged, or maybe find people that you know you've wronged and go make it right and see what God may do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, a a seemingly confusing teaching and yet a very simple one, Lord. It's just a matter of fixing what we break. And Lord, that shouldn't surprise us, especially those of us who are parents. You know, when our kids blow it, we tell them to go apologize. We tell them to fix the thing that they broke. We tell them to, to make amends. But Lord, it's, sometimes it's easy as adults to forget that, to justify why we did what was wrong. Well, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have lost our temper if they hadn't been a jerk. And Lord, we, we so frequently find ways to lose opportunities to share our faith by not recognizing our wrongs and making them right. So, Lord, we pray today that you would reveal to us ways that we need to correct some things that we've done wrong, ways to make things right so that we can influence, Lord, we can have an impact in our sphere of influence and fulfill your command to make disciples, to spread your good news. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this message. We pray you'd help us to apply it in Jesus' name, amen.
0: If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, nine a.m. to four p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.